Hi everybody, Andy here. Just before this week's episode, we wanted to announce our special guest. It is the psychotherapist, author, columnist, presenter, you name it, it's Philippa Perry. We are so thrilled to have had Philippa on the show. She was on our Comic Relief special a few years ago, and she was just so great and entertaining and interesting, we had to have her back. If you're interested in finding out a little bit more of Philippa's work, she has written a magnificent book called The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad That You Did. So do check that one out. Her next book, available to be ordered now, it's out in a few months, is called The Book You Want Everyone You Love to Read and Maybe a Few You Don't. So, we hope you enjoy the episode. We certainly enjoyed recording it. The other thing to say is that our British Library live show is coming up soon. It's on Friday the 21st of April. It's about animals. Just wanted to throw a bit of mystery in there. It's about animals. It's an animal special to go with the British Library's new animals exhibition. Anna, of course, is still away, but we have a special guest for this show, and that is going to be none other than Sally Phillips of Alan Partridge, Smack the Pony, Green Wing, Miranda, you name it. She's going to be there and she's going to be our special guest. We are very excited. Live tickets in the room are completely sold out, but there are streaming tickets available. So wherever you are listening to this, you can attend a glorious fish gig in the comfort of your own home. Why not pop over to nosuchthingasafish.com slash live or live. No one's ever really worked it out. You will be able to get yourself a streaming ticket for the show there. We hope you do so. We hope you enjoy this episode. We'll see you soon. Bye. Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with James Harkin, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and Philippa Perry. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Philippa. Hi. Child-rearing advice in the 17th century included... Tossing your baby up in a blanket to strengthen its nerves, or firing pistols near it to boost its endurance. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to start by saying, in case you suddenly want to run away and think that's a brilliant idea, <laughs> that if you toss a newborn into the air, it might break its neck because it's got no neck muscles and a oh, very yeah. big head. Yeah. So, not a great idea. Is there a minimum age at which tossing can commence? You know. Um, when did you start tossing? <laughs> <laughs> well, we got quite personal quite quickly, didn't we? Uh, knew this would happen, bringing okay. Philippa on. Okay. If you're going to do something fun, like toss somebody in the air, yeah. it's a great idea if you've got a bond and a relationship with them first. Mm. So, don't go up to a random baby <laughs> and think, oh, babies love this and toss them into the air. Yeah. A, they might break their necks if they haven't got neck muscles in yeah. it yet. And B, you do that as part of an ongoing relationship. And you have give and take with a baby. Okay, so you can't exchange words but you exchange looks and laughs. One of the first games a baby likes playing, let's start gentle, folks, <laughs> is peek-a-boo. Mm. Yeah. Now, 
that is really scary for a baby. Especially when you fire a pistol. At them <laughs> Can we just drop the firing of pistols? <laughs> okay, sorry. Yeah, don't do that, okay? Um, peekaboo, right? Mm, yeah. It's really scary for a baby because they haven't got what we call object permanence. So if mummy leaves the room, that's why baby goes, wah, because mummy doesn't exist anymore. Oh, so mummy's gone forever in the baby's eye. Possibly. Wow. We haven't really got a concept of forever, but mummy yeah. is not there and we haven't got a sense of mummy ongoing in the other room yet. Yes. So okay. it's pretty scary. And so peekaboo, the baby thinks you've disappeared for a second and that is, oh, the jeopardy. And then when you arrive again, the relief is hilarious. And then again, they want to play that again and again and again. That is the 17th century um, firing a pistol that we do in the, uh, what were we in now? 22nd century or something? 21st 21st, century. yes. It's difficult I, for me I to keep to up. I really had to think. People might be listening to this in the 22nd oh God, century. Of course, they might. Point. Let's yeah. hope they yeah. are. Can I ask with the blanket tossing though, hmm. is, is this a case of, are we thinking of a laid out blanket where we're flinging a kid into the air, like fox tossing uh, the old sport? Yeah. So, because I wondered if it was wrapping in a blanket and tossing them up and down Once, while they're wrapped. While they're squaddled. While they're swaddled, I exactly. I think it's that. I think it's the old hold the blanket by the corners and then, I think you know, so. If you're trying to baby. strengthen their nerves, then it yeah. needs to have some jeopardy, yeah. I think. We said, we said, I think chucking a baby oh, no, okay. in the air at all is okay. jeopardy. This thing about treating yeah. babies and children cruelly to make them stronger mm. is a con- utter, a complete, nasty myth that... Uh, people still cling on to my dear father for example when my daughter was about two years old and she'd just grown too large to stand up underneath the piano she hit her head on the on the piano thing and um i of course went to comfort her oh baby here dear dear cuddle cuddle kiss kiss my dad said don't do that she'll hurt herself all the time (laughs) so that she can get that sort of comfort. You are rewarding her hurting herself, he said. And I went, oh my God. Suddenly I realized why I needed 25 years of therapy. <laughs> oh no. Is, I know. But is there a thing where if a small child, let's say falls over, right? Yeah. They, they will sometimes, if you're, in the, it's like if you're in the room with a small child and they fall over, and they will sometimes give you a look as if they're kind of sizing up whether or not they're gonna cry. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And if you, if you react in a big way, they might say, oh, right, that's, that is my cue to cry. They're sort of engaging in it with you. Whereas if you say, oh, there we go, and then you sort of, you know, that It depends how frightened you are of the fall. I mean, sometimes yeah. you see a fall and you think that doesn't hurt that much. That's what I mean. Yeah, and yeah. so you go, whoops-a-daisy, yeah. and we all go, whoops-a-daisy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, when they're covered in blood <laughs> and there's a, there's a size of an egg on the head, I think they're there, darling, that must hurt yeah. isn't isn't too bad. Okay, good call. <laughs> yeah. Good, yeah, yeah, that's a good We're level of distinction. Lot. Yeah, mm. I say to my son, Wilf and Ted, um, my sons, when they're scootering, if they fall over, I say, oh, that was an amazing blooper. Because we sometimes film, and then so you're so, after those two hundred and fifty quid for a moving frame, don't you? Yeah. Do it again in slow motion. My camera's not working in slow motion. Yeah. Yes. But oh Will God. came home one day, scratched up, and he said, "Dad had an amazing blooper today." <laughs> so it kind of helps in a way. There's, there's something else here as well: is that children won't cry with people they don't feel particularly safe with. Like one day, my daughter had a quite a nasty fall in the playground, and the teachers were 
all, all saying to me when I went to pick her up, like, oh, she was so brave. She didn't cry. Mm. She didn't make a fuss. And I looked at her and think, that's not like her. Weird. And uh, so we, I went, okay, goodbye. Okay, good. We walked around the corner away from the school. As soon as we got around the corner, oh, wow, <laughs> I really hurt myself really badly. Wow. And it was just delayed comfort. She didn't yeah, want comfort right. from the teacher. She wanted comfort from me. And I'm not saying you're putting it on because you didn't do that at the time. Bollocks, you just felt pretty sad about having fallen over. And that was incompleted. That sort of like, I feel sad, I need comfort. Mm. And so whenever a child wants comfort, give it. Never mind this thing about, but they're doing it for attention. Yes, they are. And that means you need to give attention. Mm. Because once they've had enough attention, that's then and only then that you learn to internalize the comfort you get from your loving ones so that you can tell yourself things like it hurts now, but it won't hurt in, mm, in a minute. You know, you learn those things, you, you learn to comfort yourself. You know, if something awful happens to me, like, oh, I don't know, I get my credit card pocket picked. That's the, that's the, the blooper of today mm. <laughs> or something like that. Um, that's a great you know, blooper. I want, to, I want to ring up either my husband or my daughter and go, wow, wow, wow. And I spent all morning on the phone and getting things cancelled. It's been really horrible. And I just want them to go there, there. So even mm, when we're yeah. quite old, I'm 65, we still need some external comfort with for, you know for big bloopers like and i'm expecting when i have my hip hop in a few weeks i'm expecting lots of sympathy from you lot please <laughs> <laughs> so from the sound of it philippa you don't agree with i've, just, I've been looking up kind of historical you know childcare advice and, par- and parenting manuals and things like yeah. that yeah so there was a manual in the 15th century by giovanni dominici who said that ideally you i mean he did subscribe to toughening children up when small uh, dress them in rough clothing, get them to sleep in the cold. The worst of all, withhold food and wine. Oh, what? Not wine. Not wine. No, wow. that's the last straw. <laughs> get child services out there right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're sort of left out in the cold with no comfort, I think the least you could have would be a bit of wine to numb <laughs> nice the pain. Pool. Yeah. <laughs> nice, wouldn't it? Okay. I'd be interested in the history of childcare, whether it kind of goes in cycles of kind of hard love and soft mm. love, or whether we think we've kind of got to a point now and hopefully it'll kind of stay like this. Um, well, it is still going in a cycle, really, right. because we tend to do things in extremes. So we go from we must be authoritarian at all times and don't let them get away with anything to, hey, free, easy. And mm. then we think, oh my God, those kids have got no boundaries. They, they, uh, they mm. don't know where they are, who, who they're allowed to be or anything. They're all over the place. They've gone mad. We better toughen up again. Yeah. So mm. it does tend to swing like that. Mm. But of course, after everybody's read my book, they'll find the middle way <laughs> right, where okay. you have love plus boundaries. Can't ah, go wrong with that. Nice. Were you at- Hugs and guns, it's called. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's not called that! <laughs> were you at, when, so when you had children that was some years ago, as in when they were tiny, how, how, like, how old are your children now? They're sort of grown 30. up. 30. So were you by any chance, I don't know if he was still big then, a, a Spock reader, Dr. No. Benjamin Spock? No. No, he was a bit, he was a no, bit was before, before that, wasn't he? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I was reading about him and there was like this whole debate about, you know, tough love versus soft love and all yeah. of this. Because he, his books were still being published, you know, new editions in the late 90s, which is yeah. the only reason I ask. But um, 
He published his first in 1946, mm-hmm. and it sold 50 million copies by the time he died. Right. Damn, and I've only sold two million. I've got a way to go. <laughs> wow, that is embarrassing. Yeah, I know. I bet he lived long and prospered after that. Oh, he? my God. Yeah. Yes. But he, this is the crazy thing. He was blamed for the eventual children who grew up oh, where, where their really? parents had bought the book in the mid-40s, you yeah. know, the first edition. Yeah, yeah. Because then, in the late 60s, he became a very prominent protester against the Vietnam War. Uh-huh. Right. And he was very famously, you know, he was leading protests and he was told that his parenting style had led to permissiveness in the permissive society and that all these long-haired hippies protesting against the Vietnam War were basically really? ch- his of him. children, you know, and the parents oh brought, them, br- brought them up in that style. This is like the rider of Jaws then spending the rest of his life doing short protection stuff, yeah. you know, like yeah, going yeah, yeah, the yeah. opposite way for what he created. Yeah, let's just stick to the middle <laughs> way, shall we? <laughs> you know? But he was a victim of tough love too. As, in, as a child, yeah, he wasn't yeah. allowed to have a banana until he was 12. Interesting. Really? What's yeah. what's what's the goss there? I have no more details than that. I'm really sorry. I did try to well, find Well, the mind boggles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is a cool thing. Um, parenthood during the pandemic was obviously an interesting thing. If you had a baby during the pandemic, which I did, um, you... Well, there wasn't anything else to do, was there? There was nothing <laughs> else to do. make a baby. Yeah, exactly. But we, we had a thing we where... We made sourdough. But <laughs> you had sourdough. I had babies. Um, you obviously couldn't visit families and so on so in japan someone had this idea which worked really well which was a pandemic rice baby so what you would do is you would send a picture of the baby the face to this company and you would send the weight of the baby they would make a rice bag the exact weight of your baby with the face on it and send it to the parents (laughs) or the or the auntie or uncle or whatever and so while you were doing calls or whatever they could hold the rice baby and sort of feel like they had oh no the rice baby's fallen into a pan of boiling water <laughs> oh it doesn't matter I've been tossing the rice baby up into the air on a blanket with terrible results so the company did this and it worked really well and then this is now a, a sort of growing trend in Japan at weddings now there's an opposite baby that gets handed to the parents of the bride and the groom an which is baby. as in uh, sorry uh, no, no. very old man <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. What I mean is, what you would do is you would get a picture of, say, like uh, James and his wife would get pictures of themselves as kids, right. and then they would have them printed onto a rice baby, and oh, you would I give see. yourself as a child back to your parents to say, "Where I am now, this is where I came from, and you made me. This is a present to remind you of the journey that we've been on." Well, it's a beautiful ritual. I think we should all integrate that into our lives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Put in your new book. Oh. No? Okay. You write another book, Dan. Okay. All right? You keep your ideas for your book. Oh, and right. I'll keep mine for mine. Okay. How about that? Rice Babies is going to be a bestseller, I'm telling no, you. No, it's got to be a more British kind of food. Yeah. It's got to be a classic British food. It's got to be a, a, a chips. Su- suet chip baby. <laughs> yeah. Chips, chippy baby. Yeah. 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 yeah nice. Yorkshire don't pudding. Keep, don't keep so well, do they? Chips <laughs> in Yorkshire pudding. No. Um, I was reading about when Charles K. Manuals started, when oh, they t- yeah. first took off, because there, there were a few in the Middle Ages, but there were not very many, and there wasn't you know, mass literacy in the same way. And it was partly, and this is particularly in America I'm talking about, it was partly because people were moving around more. Yeah. So you might be living 200 miles from your, your parents and yeah. your immediate family. So you don't have the immediate Model, experience yeah, yeah, of yeah, a baby. Yeah, you know, yeah, you haven't yeah. grown up in loads of babies. Uh, people were moving around for work. A bit so like nowadays, manual. really. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. a manual is a, is a like very useful thing. It's like the old time yeah. NCT group. Exactly. It really is. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that's when the manuals kicked off in, in a big way. And now, of course, there are so many 
you know, thousands of manuals for, for But there's only bespoke. one you really need to buy, okay? <laughs> Rice Babies by Dan Shriver. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that France has lost at least two of its kings due to death by walking into the frame of a very low door. This is <laughs> two that we know of. There may be more. Uh, to lose one king by walking into the frame of a very low door. You know what? At first I thought that was a Toulouse joke. Yeah, Toulouse. Oh. As in, yeah, as in a... Lautrec. Oh, I was thinking the southern French town. Both would have been better than what I was doing. That's cool. Yeah, right. so... Uh, which, one, which ones are we talking? We're talking uh, Louis III, who passed away in 882, the year 882, wow. and then uh, Charles VIII. I'm presuming not the same door. Different door. No, Different it's not. Door. No, there's no incriminating door here. What yeah. Great, what a great I mean, horror film. The killer door. It waits. Was it there lurks. a bit of inbreeding with the old French royal family? Because, you know, they had another one, didn't they, who thought he was made out of glass? Oh, yes. Yeah. Was that a yes. French one? Or was that, was that a British a, one? No, it was. It was a French. I think it was one of the Charleses who right. suffered. Very Known bad as delusions. Charles the Mad yeah. for some yeah, reason. Yeah. <laughs> but inbreeding couldn't make you walk into a door frame. Well,. Maybe you were brought up not to look where you were going. Oh, yeah. almost. I guess if you're the king. Maybe the French <laughs> royals had a person who would always tell you whenever you're about to hit a door frame. Yeah, and it was, and it was his day, day off. off. <laughs> yeah. What a day. So funny. You wow. took two days off in over 500 years. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Char Charles okay. VIII, his, yeah. his reason for running into the door was he was very excited to see a game of tennis. So he was rushing out the door, mm. didn't notice the height. Of, you know when you're rushing out the door and you yeah. don't notice the height of a door? You can, you can oh. crack your head. No. <laughs> <laughs> tennis has um, killed quite a lot of royals has in it? Europe over the years. Yeah. Uh, so Louis X of France died of a chill after playing tennis on a cold day. Mm. Uh, James I of Scotland drowned in a storm drain. Uh, that he was using to escape assassins. Yeah. Uh, but the drain was blocked by tennis balls. Uh, and so he couldn't get out and he drowned. It's hard to blame that on the tennis balls, really, isn't it? He, no, yeah. but they're, they're, like the they'd be called spot. to the stand, definitely. Yeah. And uh, uh, it, it would be especially ironic for him if he had been the one playing tennis and saying, shall we go and get those balls? No, I can't be bothered. They're in the storm drain. <laughs> like, that's a good ironic. Yeah, that would mm. be ironic. Uh, and Anne Boleyn was watching a tennis match at Hampton Court when she was arrested and beheaded. Again. Wow. Not fair to blame tennis. <laughs> Though even if she'd been watching a squash game, they might have still arrested and beheaded her. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> but that's a good, no, that's that a is name. a great connection. Yeah. And they're courts, courts and courts. That's oh, a... Oh, oh I yeah. see. Yeah, Lovely. that's clever. The, the other guy, by the way, Louis the... Th the other guy. King Louis the Third uh, was chasing a girl into a house and uh, she obviously bent and he didn't. Oh, <laughs> Have been shorter than him yeah yeah she could have been shorter than him mm. is it is it true that the reason doors did used to be short is not because people obviously were smaller but because materials cost so much that it made more sense to have less material well, for a wooden door i believe door. it might have been because of the heating so if you mm. have a smaller door it keeps the heat in more okay I right i don't know about that but also I makes you think was. before you enter yeah Probably a good idea hmm do I really want to bend down to go in there? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, that's okay. Gosh. Three lost at a tennis court. Yeah. One Venn diagram overlap of uh, two lost to low doors. Yeah. Um, the lintels of a door. That's yeah. it. Do you think it's because kings wouldn't die of normal things that normal people would die of, of like 
so what like you know, syphilis starvation. well syphilis <laughs> maybe they would but yeah as in they're more likely to die of weird things it was obviously a much more dangerous time in terms of overall mortality and i th- yeah I, I don't know if kings lived longer or shorter than the average they person must have lived longer because they were better fed apart better from fed yeah it might have been washed occasionally at yeah. least twice a year yeah but you have more kind of aristocratic accidents and things like that yeah because you've got more horsing and and, and um, yes yeah and certainly in, in france they did have a lot of aristocratic accidents at the end of the 18th century didn't they oh yeah loads <laughs> yeah they really racked up um, horses were a big one prince philip of france he died when supposedly he was going through the streets and his horse tripped over a black pig that was running out of a dung heap that's uh, that's bad luck, isn't it? That's bad luck. Yeah, <laughs> there was another one who rode a horse off a cliff. If you remember, that, that's um, just careless. Yeah, that is. Ca- it's easy to do. I almost ran off a cliff on a horse. Not on a horse. You almost ran off a cliff. Sorry. Mm. Yeah, in Australia, I was going to the beach, and I was I saw the beach in the distance, and I didn't have my glasses on me, and I just ran and ran and ran, and as I got to the edge of the cliff i dove to the ground and managed to stop myself just i don't know where you've been let out at all (laughs) (laughs) that's incredible have you it's easy to do have you heard of carlo man the second of west francia (laughs) actually no can you tell me all about him please i only know about his death sadly but it's an unusual death Uh uh-huh he he and he he died after being stabbed in the leg by his servant bertoldus while they were being attacked by a wild boar so th- at this point we've got two low hanging door deaths yeah we've got three horse deaths we've got three tennis court deaths and we have now two pig based deaths yeah. as well that's interesting there's a lot of grouping going on here yeah do you know any other pillow fight deaths than the one i'm about to tell you oh mm. well martin luther king martin luther king had, ah, had, had a pillow had fight, a pillow fight right. the day before he died but it wasn't it wasn't what killed him yeah i think it might have even been the day of the it might have been like death. one of the last can things can you he start did. from the beginning i thought you'll hear this the <laughs> show would implode on itself uh, so charles ii de valois who was the son of francis the first um, he and his friends came a load, across a load of buildings that had been closed off due to the plague. Uh, and he said to his friends, no son of a king of France has ever died of plague. And so they went into these houses that had been closed off and they sort of rolled around on the beds and had a pillow fight. Full and of fleas, those beds. Well, no. full of, yeah, full of not nice stuff. And sure enough, a couple of days later, he contracted the plague and he died. Oh. That's bad. That's hubris. That's really hubristic. Yeah, that's bad. Louis the Ninth, of also of France, uh, buried in Notre Dame. So you know, getting quite eminent now. You know, buried and now cremated due to the recent fire. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon, Philip. <laughs> Too soon. Um, it's about five years. <laughs> he, um, he. There's a theory that he died because he refused to eat the local food when he was travelling. Okay, he, starved. Uh, no, it's worse than that. He was leading the Eighth Crusade in 1270 AD. Oh, that one. <laughs> and he supposedly refused to have any vegetables because the, it was, you know, some foreign muck. And he only wanted... <laughs> he, <got> to... <laughs> he, he only wanted old sausage then, yeah. about two years old from home. And he had, he had terrible scurvy, we think, oh. and didn't take any vegetables from the surrounding countryside. That's a slightly slightly simplified version Well, he wouldn't it, have but... known, of course, that that was no. what caused scurvy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. The arrogance you get from being royal is really dangerous, isn't it? Yeah. You, you think you won't get plague. You yeah. think you don't need vegetables. Do you think as a therapist that you would ever accept a case of a royal? Would it be 
very fascinating or too Ooh, too daunting? I couldn't possibly say. <gasps> what? Which one? Which one? Which one? Oh, don't be stupid. Harry. No. Don't be dumb. <laughs> okay, keep going. Till the Charles the Mad of Navarre. <laughs> That's the one. He was called Charles the Same until he went to see Fennifer. <laughs> um, no, no I, uh, I haven't seen a royal. It's not fun therapising very famous people. Yes. Because the really. point of knowing very famous people is to gossip about them. <laughs> and, you know, on pain of death, you mm. can't. So it's no fun at all. Mm. I've always wondered if I... I've, oh, I'd like to have a therapist, but I want to. I almost feel like this needs therapy in itself. I would want a ther therapist who I found who is a famous therapist. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, that's just no, that's, that's just, I mean, really we could analyze yeah. why you want to mm. see a famous therapist, but I'm not going to do that in public. Well, okay. I yep. can give you a clue. He's just obsessed with famous people. That's. <laughs> but it's no. It's not that. I want to. I want. There's something interesting about them being famous and then becoming a therapist. Right, I don't okay. know. There's something interesting there's, to well, me. Well, I'll, I'll shorten it. There's something interesting about your projection yes. onto that. No, oh. There's nothing interesting about the therapists themselves. Yeah, that's yeah. right. There you go. There we go. Okay. That's done. So that saved you a lot of trouble. Whoa. And What's money? this immediate invoice? <laughs> What's going 5,000? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> We're going to have to do a lot of Squarespace adverts. <laughs> Uh, anyway, back to Kings, back to Kings. Um, here's the thing. Um, so this is, uh, James, you mentioned the, the French Revolution. Yes. As it, as, it, as it happened. And so after the deaths of Louis the Sixteenth, wasn't it, and Marie Antoinette, um, there, was a, there was a son, they had, they had a son who would have been Louis the Seventeenth, uh, who had, had very sadly died, but this wasn't really widely known in France at the time. And there was this spell where dozens of imposters oh, yeah. came out of the woodwork claiming to be the missing dauphin and this this word spread and it's this is a really rare word it's called the faux dominaphomanie i wonder why that stayed rare faux dauphinomanie meaning the and faux meaning false yeah, yeah. And i think you needn't bother with the other <laughs> <laughs> but faux dauphinomanie i just love that and they, yeah. they had and they had varying degrees of success you know some of them were very clearly one of them was native american and just and still managed to succeed actually he was called reverend eliaza williams uh who did persuade some people but uh, yeah um charles the second of navarre uh he was known as charles the bad uh, he was sick and he was wrapped from head to toe in bandages soaked in brandy um, and then oh, you was... might absorb some of that that would be nice that'd be yeah. a good way of getting getting your kicks wouldn't it uh, but unfortunately he was placed next to an open flame oh no no oh, no and he, they're he not went. bright are they they're not bright no. this french royal family at all because i think it's fair to not know that vegetables cause scurvy but i think at that stage everyone knew that, that brandy is flammable yes yeah. i think so Gosh. Uh, but what i like about him his mother was joan the second who was the queen of navarre uh, and in 1328 she lost the areas of champagne and brie <laughs> of all the areas of France you want to lose, you so don't want to lose yeah, those yeah, two yeah. things. No, you really don't. The, the, bra the brandy one, there's so um, the brother of King Richard III, his death was he was to be executed. And so he asked that as part of his execution, could he be drowned? But could he be drowned in a barrel of Malmsey wine? Mm, so that okay, was his good death. Choice. Yeah. So he, <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't drunk it myself or drowned in it, but he, <laughs> that's, yeah, that was that's his way out. Alleged, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of kings being dipped in unusual liquids. <laughs> oh, yeah. yes. Can't believe we found our way there. Louis XVIII of yeah. France. His death is not interesting, but his afterlife is fascinating. So he was the first king to be disinfected, his body, after death. So he was 
washed with chlorides of lime, which oh. slows down decomposition. Okay. Um, and it was so he could be presented to the public without odor. And this it's was about, smell limey, if anything, which would be nice. I think. I don't it's, think it's that sort it's of lime. No, it's not that kind of lime. Sadly, uh, yeah. <laughs> careful when you go to a bar. If you say, "Can I have some lime with my gin and tonic?" Yeah. Don't get quick yeah. lime. Don't get the no, one that. Quick yeah. lime is. Is not. Oh no. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. Oh boy. Anyway, <laughs> another <laughs> tragic death. <laughs> He's not even a French royal. <laughs> okay. It is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that the Natural History Museum's collection of whale bones is so significant they won't tell anyone where it is. So this is this bizarre installation that the Natural History Museum's got, and it's... it's and where very, is it? I don't know. Come on, Andy, tell us. <laughs> it's can't. secret. It's really secret. and they, they What's have... so valuable about whale bones? Yeah. Well, it's it's an amazing archive of all sorts of uh, species. So it, it's it's not only whales, it's dolphins, porpoises, and it's, it's one of the most complete collections in the world. And they get a lot of bodies post-mortem if there have been whales or, or dolphins stranded. You yeah. know, they, they get the skeleton in the end. And what it means is if you have the skeleton, you can study all kinds of things about it. You can study diet, you can study the habitat. I can... know where they live. They live in the sea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not selling it to me, this place. Well, but yeah, also, a good point, yeah. which is where this guy who set up this place should go back to. <laughs> Release I mean, some real estate wherever it is, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the things we do know about it, the secret location, supposedly it's behind a 10-foot tall door, so I, we can assume it's not in oh. old France. Oh, um, <laughs> great for the French royal family. <laughs> but great. 10-foot tall. But is that because some of the bones are just so huge they need to... Oh, I guess so. I mean, No, actually, they might be tall and long, but if you put them the other way up, you can get them through the door. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But it's a good point that the article which this came from, which was a Guardian article and yeah. journalists went Brilliant. around looking into it, does not answer the question, why is it secret? As in, okay, great, it's it's the biggest complete collection security. and so on. Just security. But from who? But no one's going around who? trying to steal. Whatever. Maybe the Smithsonian, right? Who have the other uh, largest collection. Did you see their collection? <laughs> no, no. Is that didn't. secret as well? It's not, Actually, they're a bit more confident, I think. They, they publicly list the location. They have more animals. They have more individual animals. So 10,000. And they also, this is incredible, they have the largest blue whale jawbone ever found yeah which means that that is the largest bone of any animal ever found on the planet in its entire history wow it's bigger than a oh yeah because it's bigger than dinosaurs blue, blue whale's whale. the biggest animal ever to have lived of course and that's the biggest bone in the biggest animal and they have it wow that's so i cool. find that interesting that the biggest bone in a whale is its jawbone actually i don't know why I oh find yeah that interesting mm-hmm. but that is good point not in humans yeah. no you're right no well it wouldn't be the pelvis on a whale would no. it <laughs> On <laughs> the femur. They've got big no. pelvises, though. Have they? Oh, yeah. Have they? Oh, yeah. They have. Oh, their pelvises are so interesting. <laughs> I thought they sort of tapered off towards the end. Yeah, well, the thing, my bad. Well, because there's, there's this whole thing that they have vestigial <laughs> pelvises, right? These these legs that have, that have uh, when they were walking on land, and then they didn't need them all. So you can and see. They went, back, they went back in the they sea. Went back they in the got sea. out of the sea, yeah. and then the someone sea. said, get in the sea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they was, went back in the sea. Yeah. I think it was Philippa Perry. But, yeah. 
so the story that I read, and this is from 2014, what they've noticed is a correlation between the size of the pelvis and the testes yeah. and penis. And they think yeah. that with the muscles in between, the pelvis is basically used as a, a maneuvering object for when they're having sex in the sea. It's a thruster. Yeah, it's a thruster, it's a gripper, it's a... It's a controller. It's a controller, so the more, exactly. The more convoluted the pelvis is, the better control the whale will have over its penis. And yeah. that means that if it's a... But you can tell how promiscuous the species of whale is by the shape of the pelvis. That is yeah. fascinating. Because a more convoluted nice. one means more control, which is Is that true in the animal kingdom, do you think? like, Or in, in the mammal kingdom? Are you just thinking about know. your own pelvis right now? I can't think of anything else. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. But... <laughs> Um, yeah, How but it was thought to be for sigil, wasn't it? And this is the thing that we talk about, but they still use it. And also for the female whales, they think that it's possibly used for controlling the clitoris. But we can't see that because no. we don't have any of the bones or anything that remain. And we don't have scanners in the ocean. So how can we see whales having sex? They're trying to do things where they can, you know, mock up CGI it, but that hasn't been done yet. Right. So we know how whales have sex. Um, very, very carefully. No, that's hedgehogs. Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like most mammals would do it doggy style, right? I think so. it's like that, yeah. But we, but we, I'm not sure. I mean, you, one of your facts in the first ever episode of Fish was about grey whales having sex in threesomes. That is true. And there's always, Which means there's always a spare penis just... Flopping I around. always find that's handy. <laughs> <laughs> I was just on this. I was reading yeah. the other day. One thing with uh, whales is... Quite often, some of the, a lot of the ones that we have in the museum kind of washed up, right? They washed up on the beach, and then we collected them and put them in museums. Yeah. And th this is a thing that humans do, which is when a whale kind of goes on a beach, we decide that we need to clean it up. There's a few, lots of different reasons. One, they smell terrible. Yeah. But two, they attract sharks. So if you've got a dead whale, sharks love it, and you'll get more sharks in the area. Right. Uh, but I was reading an article in, what's that magazine that we all like online? It's about the sea. Hakai. Hakai magazine, yeah. yeah. Uh, and they were saying that basically a beached whale was a really important ecosystem uh, before mm. humans used to take them all away. In 2020, there was a whale that washed up in um, on a Dutch island, and they left it there, and they found it was visited by 57 species of beetle. And 21 of them had never been seen in that area before. Wow. So they just kind of wow. came out of Amazing. the woodwork and like got on this. Uh, and in Russia, they found a, a whale on the in the north coast. And they found that 180 polar bears were eating on this wow. single carcass. But of course, now, as soon as a whale gets washed up, we get rid of it. And it means that all these animals don't have their massive bounty that they would have otherwise had. Huh. Oh. Because, it, yeah, it is amazing, even not on land, but in the ocean, when a whale dies and it, and it falls to the bottom, that's the beginning of a new city, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's an extraordinary yeah. thing. You get every kind of life coming and living there. It's like dropping a skyscraper down. How <laughs> long do blue whales live? The biggest Ooh. creatures. Is it 200 or 300 years? It's a long time, isn't it? I think, I think it's, it's well over 100, yeah. 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 Why? I'm sure. I'm just interested. <laughs> <laughs> Usually the larger an animal is, the longer it lives, right? G generally speaking. Yeah. yeah. And there are, we've, we, I think we've said before, there are some whales alive today that were alive before Moby Dick was written. Blimey. Right. pretty cool. Yeah. There's a really interesting thing century. about whales, which is that they have more cells, so you think they would get more cancer. Um, and you would think that the bigger an animal is, the more cancer it should get because it has more cells that could go wrong. But that doesn't happen, and we're not sure why. Hmm. Maybe That's we need to study the bones and find yes. out. Well, <laughs> if only we could That's find this. <laughs> if only we had a depository of a massive amount of whale bones somewhere. Um, can I tell you, a, this, is, this is pretty on topic for me. I found an article 
headlined whale bones the world's most endangered bryophyte habitat mm-hmm. bryophytes is another word for mosses mm-hmm. and it is an article oh my God. in the british biological society journal uh, i love this this is by a guy called jeff duckett right mm-hmm. it was written a while ago now and he says however many times you've seen them there is always a certain enchantment at finding members of the splachnaceae on dung pellets and rotting cadavers and this is a particular family of mosses yeah the stimulus for my present study was the chance discovery of Tetrapalodon minoides growing on a decades-old whale skeleton, the centerpiece in an Icelandic garden. What oh. was what was initially, supposedly, a bryophyte-free holiday on Iceland then turned into a systematic search oh for mosses God. on whale bones. Imagine his wife. <laughs> He's like, we're going to go to Iceland. There can't be any moss in Iceland. <laughs> He's like Poirot, where Poirot always goes on holiday and then There's a murder, a murder. happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a- oh, my God. Yeah. Can I get down my favourite book? Yes, please. Wow, okay, um, favourite book. <laughs> Whale's Bones! Wow. We've mentioned this very briefly on the podcast before, but it's called Whale's Bones of the British Isles. (laughs) And uh, we only mentioned it a couple of hundred episodes ago, so I think it's ripe for a retread. Oh, it was episode 28. So, (laughs) (laughs) please, can I mention this a second time? It's by Nicholas Redmond and his son, and they are a father and son team. They spent 30 years traveling the UK just finding whalebone arches. This was a huge Whoa. thing in the 19th century. You'd make oh. a, an arch out of a whale's jawbone, and there used to be a very famous one in Edinburgh. Uh, so, sort of solo standing, that was. Yeah. It's yeah, sort of yeah, like yeah. Out, yeah. out in the field. Or a pub sign. Like this, this, look at that. The signboard of this public house in Downham is supported by a whale's jawbone. Um, wow. They were They used, are big, those jawbones. They're yeah. massive. They were used for fencing. Just on that picture that you oh, yeah. showed, the, it was the jawbone went to the just above the height of the actual pub itself. Yeah. So that's how tall it is for someone who's imagining it. Yeah. And the fence posts and and crane hoist supports, I'm just reading a list of different uses now, footstools, milking stools, benches, stepping stones. Amazing material. Yeah. So, and yeah, this is just, this book is such a labour of love. This is why the bit of the museum that houses the whale bones has to be top secret because it's such useful material. (laughs) We'll start building houses out of them if we find where it is. This secret room, so the person who runs the secret room, or at least is the head curator who seems to be asked about it a lot, is Richard Sabin. And I actually met Richard years ago. I went for a tour of the natural history. Where? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Industrial state off the M1 that he just by chance <laughs> wanted to meet you at. Where? Where? Next to a 10 foot door. Don't go through yeah. that door! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that Jared Manley Hopkins once had nothing to drink for a week for a bet. He only stopped when his tongue went black. Good. He did that at school, I think. He did, he did. Yeah. And he went to school Highgate? Highgate, yeah. 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 He argued that everyone had more liquids than the body needed. Everyone was drinking too much, that's why he decided. <laughs> and people said, no, no, what, what do you mean by that? And he really stuck by his guns and he said, no, I reckon I can go without any liquids for at least a week. Hmm. Okay, so he did this bet with one of the other boys, and not only his tongue went black, but he also collapsed, and you know, in the middle of a you know pee. Um, yeah, PE would be the time you would collapse. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, but the headmaster, who is called John Bradley Dine, he sort of really punished him, uh, and he was forced to return the money that he, you know, 
because he got the guy said well you know you've done pretty well so we're going to give you the money but ah. he was forced to give it back ah. and he complained that he was being punished more than the other boy because not the other boy they both got punished but he also had to give the money back right and right. that just made the headmaster hate him even more and he got you know wow he had a bit of a bad time at highgate he actually. um was a very original thinker mm. and uh authority like t- many teachers don't like that they just no. want obedient children that don't ask too many questions and uh i expect he really irritated all his teachers because he was probably cleverer than they were mm. yeah but the thing with the liquids yeah yeah isn't there a theory that if you ever have a pee or oh, that it shows you've been drinking too much as no, in no, your no, body, Andy, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, every that, time you have a pee, you're like, oh, you know what? I should, I should have cut down on the drinking your earlier. Your pee should then... look like champagne, not stewed tea. Yeah, oh, whereas if right. you're not drinking very much, it will look like stewed tea. Mine is in cubes. Is that a problem? <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a problem when you're squeezing it out, I should think. Yeah, okay, no, so he didn't think that. He just thought people... It's a weird thing to decide that people are drinking too much. As in, it's yeah. a weirdly... Um... Well, it would have been just a school argument that got out of hand, right? Yeah, like, like that's yeah, all that. He did the same thing with salt, didn't he? He abstained yeah, from salt yeah. for a week really? for the same reason he wanted to show. Yeah. But mm. what I think this shows is that he could steer his mind rather than just go with the flow and, and not not be thoughtful and not be, be mm. influenced. He could decide where he wanted to go in life rather than just be blown about in the wind. Yeah. And these experiments he were doing, I think they're wonderful experiments to sort of, what can I do? What can my body do? What am I capable of? Yeah. yeah. Should we say who he is? Just, just quickly. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Philip, yeah. you're a fan, aren't you? Yeah, I did him for A-level. I got a crush. And oh. uh, I bet he was gay, actually. I was just thinking about this now, and I'm feeling slightly disappointed that I wouldn't have stood a chance. I'm afraid from the research, he absolutely was, yeah. Oh, damn! <laughs> just quickly, he's like a really, really famous Victorian poet. Oh, yeah, yeah that. He's Sorry. a friend of uh, Robert Bridges. Um, yeah, another poet. Yeah, that's right. And um, he was sort of like late 19th century, right. wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And, and I realised that's a He very invented famous, something oh, called yeah. sprung rhythm, mm. which is, I caught this morning's morning's minion dapple dawn drawn high there on a wimpling whim. Do you see what I mean? Wow. You sort yeah, of, yeah. you dance, the, the words dance, it's sort of, and where did you go there in terms of if I was reading that on the page? Am I am I on a third line or was that one line? I can't remember. Right, but but it's I, not iambic pentameter where you've got five feet. Ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum. Yep. Ba bum ba bum ba bum. It, ba, it ba, can ba, go on forever and seems to fly like wow. the birds he's talking about. Yeah, it's very jazzy. Yeah, and I was very taken with it as a keen A level student, and right. um, he made me cry. I loved him so much. It was just so beautiful. And he never got to see any of it because he wasn't published until yeah. post his death, 30 never, years after his death. He never got fangirled by me, which he's probably quite <laughs> glad about. <laughs> he was very slightly Hawaiian. Really? Well, Tell he, me he more. Had a strong Hawaiian connection in his life, basically. Right. He, he wasn't personally Hawaiian himself. <laughs> his uncle used to live there, right? Look, can you let me tell the story again? <laughs> Right. He just ate a lot of pineapple and hooligans. <laughs> he had a favourite pizza. <laughs> <laughs> um, his his dad was the Hawaiian consul general in London. Okay. So, and you're right, Dan. Yes, his uncle Charles <laughs> had moved to Hawaii, but had fully learned the language yeah. and had established wow. an Anglican bishopric in Honolulu. So I think I think he had lived there, and then I think his father, who was called Manly Hopkins, that was his dad's name. Yeah, the son was Jeremy Hopkins. 
must have visited and been and you know sort of become the representative I just think that's cool you don't think of that with no, that is Manny true. Hopkins you know. well because his family were Protestant like you say but okay. then he just decided he was going to become Roman Catholic didn't he uh, yeah. and he was already writing some amazing poetry at that time but when he became Roman Catholic he decided to burn it all I'm just oh, like yeah. this was I'm just mm, going to get rid of so everything I'm just going to stop becoming yeah. a poet I'm just going to never do any poetry I'm going to get rid of all my poetry yeah. I just yeah. don't understand that split with his parents because his parents sound really cool because they mm. encouraged his original thinking mm. and his mother was unusually highly educated for the time and also encouraged him and do you think he went Roman Catholic because that's easier to be gay so you don't have to get married like you might if you're an Anglican we do know that he went so like when he converted um, he was trying to come home to see his family and so on for Christmases and stuff like that and there are letters that sort of show that he would write to his dad saying is it okay that I come back to the house and the well, suggestion because he, he's changed his yeah because what, because the worry was that and this was the condition yes you can come home but absolutely, by under no means, can you convert your brothers and sisters to your religion. So he had to promise he would uh, not do uh, that when he came back home. So you it have wasn't to... a complete rift, <laughs> as no. I'd been led to believe. It might, have, it might have turned into that, but certainly yeah. for the first two mm. Christmases after this letter, yeah. he was allowed to go back home and do that. You, and have, he to, did... you have to wear a lei, like everyone else at Christmas. <laughs> you have to say aloha, like all the rest of us. <laughs> I know it is running a bit short. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, Can I just say about the when he burnt everything? Yeah. At the age yeah. Of, so he burned everything at the age of 24, as in everything he wrote before the age yeah. of 24, he burned. He, um, but And it was, as you say, James, because he got faith. Um, and he gave up creativity because he couldn't reconcile his faith with his creativity. So he gave yeah. up writing for seven years and, and became a, a Jesuit. But what's the one thing you would do before becoming a Jesuit? So one thing that's not allowed. You want to have one last... Oh, crazy okay. blowout yeah um have a wank well <laughs> yeah mate well he did like yeah. orgasm you can see a lot of metaphor for sort of orgasm things oh, in, yeah. in the poems oh, is, are there when okay. he used to, used to know so we'll get back to yours in a second yeah, yeah, do, yeah. but he used to note that in his diary there was a secret code he used to say oh which was old habits and the old habits was uh, having a wank having a wank well yeah. it might have just been Bless saying him. oh <laughs> <laughs> um okay so, the so what did he do before uh, he, surfing he, he ate a bit of fruit no uh, he visited Switzerland which oh. banned Jesuits from entering the country <laughs> so he took his opportunity to um, oh, interesting. to visit Switzerland which might be code as well for actually saying it now it sounds like code <laughs> visited Switzerland again this morning <laughs> oh oh I can't yodel <laughs> um, his big yeah. first poem Really, sort of the one that he's largely known for these days. Which, I know. Okay. I know. Uh, Wreck of the Deutschland. That's it. Hey! Correct. Uh, yeah. So he wrote. He wrote that. Um, in it was based on a shipwreck from the 1800s, 1875, and he was inspired by a group of nuns who were on the shipwreck who sort of prayed to God as they were going down, and that gave him the inspiration. And he, as part of writing it, created this amazing new technique in poetry, which it was called um, sprung rhythm. Sprung rhythm. Um, and so he sent it. He sent it into a Jesuit magazine called The Month to have it published, and yeah. they rejected it. No. Um, and uh, the article I was reading just had this really nice little um, sort of nugget of fact, which is that something that did make it into the Jesuit magazine as a poem was written by someone, a student, who identified himself as O F O apostrophe F W W. Any idea who that could be? <sighs> Gosh. Oh, O-F-O. O-F-O. F-W-W sounds like something to do with WWF. 
shiv light you see that's what breaks through the beams and cilian is another word that he came up with it's the act of plowing a field and it's the sort of rich soil the shiny soil that you get Mm. on a newly plowed field if he had something that he felt so deeply about that language could not describe he just made his own language up for it so cool very cool would his poems have had to have like a little glossary at the end (laughs) to tell you what it means or would it be clear only in the the a-level notes (laughs) which i deeply relied on Uh, (laughs) you're right that is what yeah um his love life is very sad and thwarted basically because he was he seems to have been gay in love with one man uh, who died very tragically young and then never really recovered from that um he was in love with a a young man called digby mackworth dolben uh who i just i like this fact about him so i like it so much he was expelled from eton can you guess what for Wanking? No. <laughs> it's not always the answer. What, what it, time? But it will it be. be. It will be. It will be. <laughs> How were you on Mastermind that time? <laughs> Disaster. <laughs> Clean that chair. Um, <laughs> Dig started. I need to finish. <laughs> Digby Mackworth Dolben was um, he was expelled from Eton you're never going to get it in a million years for for wandering the countryside dressed as a medieval monk <laughs> that's right shoeless that's so sweet that I know nice, isn't it I can see why you fancied him yeah it was yeah. sort of like imaginary world living yeah, in no. a little bit poetic yeah. flowing robes Ooh. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know and Hopkins confessed his love to his confessor because uh, I think he was a fair bit older than Dolben. And then yeah. the confessor said, well, you can't have any contact with him except by letter. And oh, then, <laughs> <laughs> that's practically saying text him now, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Um, and then Dolben, <laughs> Dolben tragically drowned just two years later. Oh, he was age yeah. 19. So young. It's really sad. Oh, that was a bit of a creepy age gap, actually. But, you know. Yeah, I was sort of glossing over that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> make it sound more doomed and romantic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I'm sure we have enough. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Unless oh, anyone... Can somebody read us just one poem? Come on. Sounds do like you, you have can. one. Well, I do have one. Oh, <laughs> Spring and fall to a young child. Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving leaves like the things of man you with your fresh thoughts care for? Can you? Ah, oh, as the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder. By and by, nor spare a sigh, though worlds of one wood leaf meal lie, and yet you will weep and know why. Now, no matter, child, the name, sorrow springs are the same, nor mouth had, nor mind expressed what heart heard of, ghost guessed. It is the blight man was born for, it is Margaret you mourn for. Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that have been said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. James. At James Harkin. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Philippa. Philippa. 
underscore Perry, I think. I'm not sure. It might just be Philippa Perry. No, it's Philippa underscore Perry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. And do make sure, more important than anything else, to look out for the future book of Philippa Perry. Let's see if she can remember what it's called. The book you wish everyone you love would read and some of those you don't that won't be published for, uh, for months no uh, not no, until october the 20th mm. yeah <laughs> in the meantime you could buy the book you wish you'll oh fuck i can't remember the book, <laughs> the book you wish your parents had read and your children will be glad that they did yeah, that you, you did that you fuck. did yeah it's a long time since i've done any publicity for that one <laughs> oh, that, that's fine rice babies will also be available uh this coming fall by me dan schreiber uh otherwise uh come back next week we're gonna have another episode another guest we'll see you then goodbye <laughs> <laughs>